Hi, I'm Isa Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hun. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Callista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. It is Wednesday, October 19th. The roller coaster that is Netflix took another turn yesterday. The company said it added 2.4 million net subscribers during the third quarter, higher than the 1 million it had forecast, and a reversal from the past two quarters where it actually lost subscribers worldwide. The stock went nuts. It was up 14% after the bell yesterday, and it's now up 30% in the past five days. Remember, this is a company that lost 60% of its value in the past year. I mean, it was way, way down. Hollywood loves this turn because every company's stock in the industry is now tied in some ways to streaming. Netflix is the leader and the catalyst for huge shifts in the entertainment industry that we've seen over the past decade. Now, with these new numbers, it stands at 223 million subscribers worldwide. But the news wasn't all good. The gains came mostly in Asia, uh, which is a still-growing market, and not in some of its more mature markets like the U.S. And despite hot shows like Dahmer, the second batch of Stranger Things 4, and movies like The Gray Man and Purple Hearts, Netflix only gained about 100,000 subs in the U.S. and Canada. So is Netflix back? Was it never really down in the first place and Wall Street doesn't know what it's talking about? Rich Greenfield is coming in. He's the analyst at Lightshed Media. He's going to talk to us about all things Netflix, some of the interesting things that are going on over the next few months, including the dreaded password sharing crackdown that Craig is so very afraid of, and the ad tier, the cheaper ad tier that's about to launch, whether that's going to be good, bad, or neutral for Netflix. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Rich Greenfield of Lightshed Partners, and we had some big news yesterday. Netflix is back, question mark, or did it not really ever go away and everybody was delusional and taking crazy pills that Netflix was going to somehow go out of business? Uh, I think the momentum has shifted, and if the market is any judge it's up 30 percent in the past five days so where are we is netflix have they turned a corner here or did they never really go away wall street's really great at sort of projecting out whatever the latest data point is right and so when all of a sudden you start losing subs the immediate knee-jerk reaction in the excel model is you're going to keep losing subs forevermore 
And, you know, honestly, we've had a pandemic. There's been a lot of, there's been sort of the boomerang people then after the pandemic wanting to be out of the house more and sort of changing behavior. There's been an extreme amount of competition that surged in late 2020 into 21. Like there's been a lot of factors that make it not so easy to just say, oh, this is what's happening and that that's what's going to happen forevermore. And I think you had a lot of investors that took the total addressable market, what I call TAM, mm-hmm. who took the TAM of streaming, thought it was five to 800 million homes worldwide. And after early 22 results from Netflix and others sort of thought, oh, it's only going to be 200 to 300 million homes. Like, that's it. And I think what you're starting to see again now is, oh, the world's a big place. Netflix has found a way to go after sort of lower end, lower income homes with an ad plan. This might be a bigger business again than than we feared. I don't think we're anywhere near back to the enthusiasm for streaming we had back in the pandemic. But I think we got way, the pendulum swung way too far the wrong direction or the other direction. And you're now normalizing back to what is a more realistic view of streaming. Well, and there's much more competition now. And I think that you're right in the sense that the investment community didn't really know what to make of Netflix because it was skewed by the pandemic. But these numbers, while encouraging, they are not at the growth level that a lot of people expected Netflix to be at at this time this year. Um, you know, sure. the forecast for next quarter is at about 4.5 million ads and subscribers, which would be about half of what happened in that quarter in 2021. So it's not really like Netflix's return to this incredible rate of growth. And I think the opinion Sub, on Wall subs are re- so wait, subs are revenue. I think, you know, it, it is subs. We're, we're going to get to what we should yeah. be talking about. We'll get to that topic, but I'm just talking about subscribers worldwide, which traditionally has been the metric by which Netflix has been judged. Sure. And, you know, I think the, the fact that, they are challenged in some of these more mature markets like the US. I mean, only growing 100 subs, 100,000 subs in this country despite releasing second batch of Stranger Things and huge hits like Dahmer and The Gray Man. Uh, you know, it 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 you you now understand why they're introducing this $7 advertising tier. We've been saying and banging the drum for the last probably six months that Netflix does not have a content problem. Their content is beloved. The challenge for Netflix is monetizing people that are using the service and not paying for it. And I think, you know, as they cramp down on password sharing and go after, you know, homes that have not had Netflix, like if you don't have Netflix, there's 67 million homes in the US with with Netflix. If you don't have Netflix, you're either mooching off of someone else that you know, family member or friend, or you probably just can't afford it at this point. And so I think that's why you're going to see Netflix's first ever ad campaign. I think this is really important. In the history of Netflix, they've never marketed price before. It's always been about the content. You've never seen a Netflix ad saying $15.99 or $9.99. Now you're going to see a Netflix ad campaign saying Netflix at its lowest price Ever. And that's what's going to start in a couple of weeks. So I think it's a pretty big deal of increasing the monetization for the content that people love because you've got 100 million people watching Netflix every day. You've only got 67 million of those households paying. All right. Well, I will push back a little bit on the quality metric. I do believe that the hit rate for Netflix needs to be higher. Given the spend and given the quality of talent that they are working with, 
the quality should be better. I mean, look at that. There's a Charlize Theron movie directed by Paul Feig that's opening this weekend. And, you know, it's getting horrible reviews. The list of filmmakers who have done their worst work at Netflix is long and distinguished. And a lot of these big deals that they signed have generated show after show that does not resonate. And then they have a Ryan Murphy who, in the four year, fourth year of his five-year deal, he delivers two big hits in Dahmer and The Watcher. Have you, have you seen the reviews, Matt, for Black Adam? They're bad. Yes, but we have not seen what it will do in theaters. The, the audience for DC movies may not care. We'll get to that later in the show. But <laughs> but I agree. No, there are a lot of bad movies and a lot of bad a lot of outlets. I'm not saying that okay. other studios don't make bad movies, but the Netflix content spend, you know, 20 billion dollars without sports a year. I mean, that when you do that, the hit rate should be higher. Yeah, I, I guess one of the challenges that we have and and I would be curious for your opinion too. Kevin Hart's Me Time, I you know not reviewed terribly well, but I think last time I checked was at 150 to 160 million hours stream. Like the numbers were just bonkers when you looked at sort of the consumption worldwide. Would put it probably as one of the large outside of Top Gun and Doctor Strange, probably one of the most watched movies worldwide this year. And I don't think most people would say that was a quality or even a successful movie. Yet it got tremendous watch time all around the world. It's just a very, very question. Is Jeffrey Dahmer a better quality series than Andor or Obi-Wan? Because it got a lot more attention than either of those Lucasfilm series. But what's quality? I think that is a complicated question. And I see your point there because I don't want to be a snob about it. Quality is certainly not what I think is good. There are objective metrics for this that, are, that go beyond just minutes engaged whether people finish the movie, whether people are staying in the ecosystem because of the movie, signing up for the movie. I mean, there are lots of different things that you and I both follow to gauge whether something is considered good or bad by a streaming service. And it's not necessarily, it's certainly not what the critics think. Uh, but let's get to some of the things that were discussed yesterday because Netflix put out their, their quarterly shareholder letter and the tone of it came across defensive to me. I mean, there's been a lot of criticism of Netflix over the past six months because the numbers haven't been good and people have made a lot of suggestions because they are changing some of these things that they said they would never do, like advertising and password sharing, crackdown and all this stuff. And they come out in this letter and they double down on backing the binge model. They say, you know, this is a quote from the shareholder letter. We think our bingeable release model helps drive substantial engagement, especially for newer titles. They also double down on not releasing movies in theaters. I mean, there's been a lot of speculation as to whether what they're doing with Knives Out and giving it the sequel 600 theaters in... 600. Yes, I know. We'll talk about that. But giving it 600 theaters in November is a sign that they will work with the theater chains on theatrical. And, you know, Ted Sarandos, he doubled down and said, we think our primary goal is Netflix movies on Netflix. So... They are doing some things differently. They are saying we're never going to do things that they have said they're never going to do. Um, what do you think is going on here in terms of Netflix's shareholder letter and what they said to the shareholders about their plans for the future? Well, look, even on the binge model, let me push back, right? They're basically saying we're, we believe in binge. We want people to get lost in the content. And especially if you think about if you're building an ad model, 
it's all about time spent, right? Who dominates connected TV advertising today? It's not any media company that you talk about. The dominant player in connected TV advertising is YouTube because they represent over 20% of time spent on a connected TV. Disney Plus can be great at connected T or can be great at advertising, but the viewership of Disney Plus is fairly de minimis, especially outside of young children. So you need time spent. And I think the way you drive time spent is clearly through the binge model. So to the extent that you believe in advertising. Well, but they were doing binging before they had ads. And the primary model here is subscription. And I sure. think what what HBO Max and some of the others have shown is that if you go week to week, you know, drop a few at the beginning and then go week to week or do all week to week, you can stretch out that interest level and you can make an event out of a show in a much more effective way than you can if you drop them all. If you have an incredible piece of IP and you know it, extending it out certainly makes sense. I mean, look what Netflix even did with breaking Stranger Things into two pieces. You know, they're talking about the binge model, but they're not saying we won't separate seasons and sort of create sort of build interest and build buzz the way they certainly did with Stranger Things. And they've done that with other titles. So I, I don't think those are mutual, completely mutually exclusive. I'd say one, two, there's plenty of series that get lost because they don't have the binge model, meaning you never even come back. So Game of House of Dragon or even Lord of the Rings. I would call both of those not your normal properties. The question is, can things that you've never heard of, how much easier is it to build an audience when you can get lost in a series and then recommend it to someone? And remember, everything effectively becomes binge after, you know, eight to 10 weeks anyway, because it all is available. With True. The click of a button. But you saw, I mean, on HBO, even this past year, we saw things like White Lotus or Winning Time really catch fire and gain audience throughout their weekly viewings sure. because people were able to catch up and then they you know were interested and it was a topic of conversation so we don't have to debate the binge model here but but i would just caution that i don't think netflix series would be more successful if they put them week to week just like i don't think there's a lot of successes on these other streaming services like there is plenty of content coming out week to week that is failing every single day Maybe it would do better in the binge. It's possible. Maybe you would get more absorbed. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. Well, let's talk a little bit about the ad tier that is launching November 3rd. My big concern about this from Netflix's perspective is this is the billion-dollar question in streaming is... Is the cheaper advertising-driven tier going to cannibalize the people that subscribe to the full freight and not be able to make up the difference in revenue for the ads? That is the question. And Netflix, you know, the, the COO, Greg Peters, said that you know, they see it as neutral at worst or additive at best. I'm not so sure about that. That might be a short-term explanation, but long-term 
this is all just devaluing the price of Netflix, right? $6.99 for a product that right now people are paying $9.99. I mean, if you think that people who are streaming multiple streams, you know, meaning a family or a couple that has multiple streams is downloading so they can take it in the car, take it on a plane, subway, whatever. Um, if you think that person is dropping down from $15.99 to $6.99, Matt, you're 100% right. This is a bad decision by Netflix. If this is the low-end user, which is probably 15 plus percent of Netflix's base that pays $9.99, I don't think, you know, my guess is you don't know a lot of people who are paying $9.99 and only taking one stream SD um, and, you know, can only use one stream at a time. Like my guess is you don't know a lot of those people, but for those people, if they drop down from $9.99 to $6.99, at least in this country, Netflix is going to make more than $9.99. Like there's more than $3 of advertising. So it's a really positive decision in this country. Now, remember, this is not just launching in this country, and it may actually not have that much of an effect in the US. In Latin America, where you have tons of password sharing, actually more rampant password sharing in Latin America than any other part of the world. So probably 40 plus percent of people are sharing passwords in markets like Latin America. Offering a low-end service that has advertising could be really beneficial in driving subs and overall revenue. So I think it's you can't look at advertising in isolation. You have to think about it in the context of they're going to start cracking down on password sharing. They're starting to give you the tools like exporting your watch list. Like they are prepping the market for this crackdown between an ad tier at a low price, you know, an advertising based tier that they're going to market aggressively as a new low price way to get Netflix at the same time that they're trying to get all of these moochers off of the service and convert them into either you pay as part of your primary account more money. Like I'll pay for my daughter who uses it at college. I'll have to start paying for her or the friends who are going to get kicked off of someone's account and have to start paying themselves. And so I think it's all tied together, but you're right. I want to come back. If you believe six, 1599 customers are dropping down to 699 and are willing to deal with lower quality, less content, no downloading and five minutes of ads an hour after years of using Netflix without all of that, this is a very bad decision. I think that risk is very low, but I can't disagree if you think that's going to happen. Well, I think the chances are higher than very low. And, you know, we say four to five minutes of ads now, sure. but there will be pressures every quarter to ratchet up that revenue. And where does it come from? It comes from adding advertising. Next thing you know, it'll be 10 minutes an hour. Next thing you know, it'll be 15 minutes an hour. And the quality of the product will go down. Next thing you know, Netflix is basically operating broadcasting cable television on the internet. Look, I, I made a comment to Spencer Newman. I said, this is the CFO of Netflix. And I said, my biggest fear about you doing advertising is you, the CFO, right? Because you're exactly right. The fear is, oh, what's the easiest way to generate more revenue? Oh, let's just you know add more advertising. Look at what Hulu, remember when Jason started Hulu, the ad load was so low and it was such a beautiful experience. And it was, hey, instead of even watching you know, 30 second spots, you could actually watch a trailer for a movie. Like they were giving you options or which of these ads do you want to watch? Like it was a great, unique ad experience. And now it's eight to 10 minutes of advertising that is unskippable. That feels like, actually it feels worse than TV because the ads are so repetitive and, and annoying. Um, so I do think that the risk is there of turning up the dial. I will say though, that when you talk to Netflix, they seem very focused on going forward, 
not day one, but their goal is to make advertising feel different than what it feels like on TV. And I think on day one, it obviously looks exactly like it's disgustingly like TV on day one. They say that that is not their long-term solution. This was just the quickest way to launch. And that I think the quote that I've heard from Ted Sarandos is, the reason I'm excited about advertising is we think we can innovate on advertising itself. There is no proof of that today. Yeah, that you know how many ad executives have said that over the years, and boom, thirty second spot, boom, fifteen second spot. Sure. I mean, I just, I, 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 I'd love to see it. And if any company could do it, maybe Netflix can. The tech has always been better than the other services. There are two companies that have done it, right? I mean, Instagram certainly turned ads into content, right? Where the con- where the ads you were being served felt like things that you actually wanted to buy. And I'd say TikTok has meaningfully innovated on advertising, where you are actually creating TikToks, not traditional commercials. You know, so I don't exactly know what innovative advertising is going to look like on Netflix. I really don't. And they haven't commented at all on what they're thinking. But I will say that they seem to be very focused on understanding the risk that you just said and that advertising has to evolve. Like, look, I've also thought about what would a brand pay to be the only advertising sponsor of Stranger Things? Remember when Ford sponsored 24? Of course. I mean, the the, the ad community loves this because they've always wanted to get on Netflix and they haven't been able to. But that's now. That's when it's special. In two, three years when it's not special, what does it feel like? And if you argue, you know, Netflix has always been a company that said at least publicly, that they valued the consumer's privacy. I've talked to Ted Sarandos about this. Like he, he would say, we don't even know if you're a man or a woman. We only know what you watch. And that has to change now, right? Because they are going to try to serve advertising in the best way that they can. They are using ratings to determine you know, who's watching what, and we're going to get a little bit more transparency about that which is great in my opinion, but they're also using it to target demos and figure out who their consumers are. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're going to perhaps in five years, it'll be just like Instagram where I send a text to a buddy about pizza and all of a sudden I'm served a DiGiorno ad. Well, but the the one thing I wanted to sort of get across to you is my partner, Brandon Ross, on our podcast, I think last week, he sort of joked, half joked, Netflix is now legacy media. Yeah, they are. Well, so so the question is, can they get out of that? Like, can they actually innovate on advertising so it doesn't feel like what every other company is doing? There has not. If you think about Peacock, Paramount Plus, Hulu, there is not a lot of innovation in the approach to advertising. We'll see. I know, I'm sure everyone is skeptical and you have the right to be skeptical because at least on first blush, Netflix's approach to advertising looks just like everybody else's. And that's a good transition because Netflix now, one of the other things that they announced yesterday is that they want everybody to judge them on a different metric of success rather than subscribers they add or subtract each quarter. They say that they want everyone to look at their revenue and profits. Now, obviously, this is a self-serving pivot because the comps are very good for Netflix. Netflix's streaming service is profitable, whereas the other entertainment companies that have launched streaming in the past few years, especially their streaming services are not profitable. And in most cases, they lose billions of dollars a year on their streaming services. Now, I think this is a bit of a misdirect here. And 
Uh, but I'm curious first what you think about this change. Things like subs were a really useful tool because they were a proxy for revenue growth and earnings growth. Like you sort of looked at it and said, well, if you can get to this many subscribers, like we used to do the math, this, you know, if Netflix got to 300 million subs at a $15 ARPU and it had this type of margin, then this was the growth rate over this many years. This is the valuation it would command. And so subs was just a proxy for getting at what could the company be worth in five years. But the ultimate role was, okay, what's the revenue and what's the profitability of that revenue? And so as you start to do things like advertising, where it's not just the subscriber, but it's also the advertising revenue on top of it, where you're charging people maybe three, four, five dollars more a month because they're paying for extra people on their account. Like the whole, what is the, the value of a, the individual subscriber ARPU is changing a lot. And some of the growth in 23 may come from people just increasing the ARPU of their existing subscriber. And so that's the revenue per subscriber. So the money they make off of a subscriber, they call it average revenue per member. They call it arm versus ARPU, whatever. It's the same effective thing. I don't know. Reed likes the word arm, but the, the concept is the same of it, it become, it begins to matter a heck of a lot less where the revenue comes from, the pieces of revenue. And remember, they're still reporting. I think there's been a lot of mangled in the I press. know, they're just not forecasting it. I get Correct. it. But listen. That, that's a big difference. People, people like us are still going to forecast subscribers and ARPU to get to revenue. They're just not going to guide to the pieces. And they're still going to tell you the growth came from this or that. Like They're still going to give you a feel for what's happening in the quarter ahead. They're just not. like They're going to say... Of the 10% revenue growth we expect, we, we think there'll be low single-digit growth in membership and blank percent growth in average revenue per member. Like They're going to give you the pieces. They're not going to give you pinpoint estimates the way they have in the past. People have been so obsessed with the sub number and not focus enough on revenue. I think this is sort of the company saying, in any business, revenue and profitability is what matters. Right, and we've but gotten for 10 so obsessed years, with subs. For 10 years, they, it was the exact opposite. Don't pay attention to revenue. Sure. We're growing, growing, growing in our subs. And the funny thing is about this change in direction is they're competing against these legacy media companies that have multiple revenue streams. To say that, oh, Disney is losing five to six billion, or what do they say, 10 billion on their streaming service. Well, Disney has theme parks that throw off billions of dollars in profit to fund this expansion into streaming. Disney has cable networks that are still extremely profitable that are helping them fund this move into streaming. So it's they're trying to paint these other companies as these big struggling monstrosities, whereas Netflix is this amazingly nimble and profitable streaming service. Netflix does one business that is part of these other conglomerates, but is not the entire thing. And I think it's a little bit misleading. I think a lot of the media companies would probably be served by shifting in this direction, right? Disney's jacking price by 38% or forcing advertising onto their entire subscriber base in the US uh, starting in December. Subscriber growth really is not going to be a major driver of Disney Plus, I don't think, anymore. I think it's much more about monetization. And so if you focus on subscribers, you're probably going to miss the Disney story too. Well, the Disney revenue is much lower per subscriber because of the India nonsense and all that stuff. Sure. But as they ramp that revenue up per subscriber, what's going to matter is the ARPU, not the subscriber number. Like Disney getting to profitability in the next two years 
will have very little to do with subscriber growth and a lot to do with revenue growth caused by the average revenue per member. So I'm just saying this is not a Netflix issue. And I wouldn't be surprised to see other companies shift towards this because at the end of the day, revenue and profit. I mean, I think that's the sort of the point, right? All of these other companies are seeing their profitability in streaming. They're losing billions of dollars. Unlike Disney, I'm not sure many of them have the ability to raise price to get to profitability. And their core cable network business is finally starting to erode. I mean, that's the, that is the alarm bell that should be going off all around Hollywood is the cable network model is under real risk of becoming a secularly declining business in 23 and beyond at the same time that they're burning billions on streaming. Yeah. All right, Rich. Thanks for coming on the pod. Appreciate you always. Thanks for having me. All right, we are back with the call sheet. Craig, are you excited for Black Adam this weekend with The Rock? It takes a lot for me to get excited for a superhero movie nowadays. And unfortunately, Black Adam didn't cross the threshold for me. Yeah, it looks kind of dreary, right? I, I like The Rock. Um, I you know, have not been a huge DC movie fan, but you know, the Batman was pretty good. This one just, yeah. I don't know. This one doesn't look great to me. The reviews are pretty terrible there uh it's at about 52 percent right now as we are taping on rotten tomatoes um anti-entertaining one outlet called it he's an anti-hero and it's anti-entertaining uh yeah i don't i could go on and on and the reviews are bad but you know dc fans don't typically care about the reviews tracking for this movie has sort of been all over the place it was above 70 and then it's come down some some are saying you know it, it will struggle to get to 60 the tracking is 65 by the sources that i trust so i'm going to take the under on 65 million for the opening weekend i just don't think this movie is going to connect i'm a little bored with the rock he personally doesn't do it for me i have super superhero fatigue and like, when's the last time a new superhero character was introduced to audiences and it was a massive hit? Well, the comps on this movie are interesting because it's DC. So, you know, you look at standalone DC movies and something like, you know, Aquaman opened to 67, I believe, million. But Aquaman was in the Justice League. Aquaman is famous. Yeah, that's true. I know this is a relatively minor character. If you go over to Marvel and you look at some of their more obscure standalones like ant-man opened to 57 million captain marvel opened to 153 million which mm -hmm. is astounding in retrospect uh i don't think this movie's getting anywhere near but if but also if you look at the rock outside of fast and furious the rock has never had a movie open to 60 million so this will likely be his biggest opening of his career even if the movie disappoints that might be the case. When I think of The Rock, I think of a mid-tier action film about an earthquake in L.A., and that's kind of what he is to <laughs> Maybe, me. although he's been attaching himself to these quasi-franchise properties. He tried to do Jungle Cruise and turn that into something, and I think they are doing a sequel to that one. And yeah. you know, he's one of these la the last guys that is trying to architect a big movie star career. And you know, I, I do think that by putting himself in this, and I'm sure they have a deal for multiple other appearances and other DC movies. Um, he will be with this character a while, unless this movie outright flops, which uh, we'll see. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Rich Greenfield. I want to thank producer Craig Horlbeck, and I want to thank you. We'll see you next week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. 
you might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong. But these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.